Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'll do the same. First Peter chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 4 and read to verse 10. And in coming to the word, we are coming to Jesus. So let us go to Jesus now. Peter writes, coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God as precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who have not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. We are those who have obtained mercy the mercy of God. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we are coming to you, the living stone, as living stones, praying that your Holy Spirit would be shaping us into your image. We pray that we would be built together according to the standard of our chief cornerstone. Uh, we ask for a spiritual understanding of a spiritual book. Um, we pray that we would know this great calling which you've called us to, this holy priesthood, this holy nation that we are a part of. We ask that you would change us into the image of Christ. That is our desire, and we know it's yours. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 I, like, I like the way Peter writes here. You know, there's, there's some people that, uh, that you know, and they just, they know how to encourage you. Uh, they know how to come alongside a friend and say those perfect words. You know, the proverb says, apples of gold and setting of silver. And after they talk to you, there's just the, such, this, such a healthy, wholesome, affirmation, you know, your spine straightens and, and your eyes clear and you wipe that single tear away from the edge of your eye and you say, I think I think I can go on. I can I think I can do this. You know, call that the gift of encouragement or exhortation or the gift of mercy or whatever, but no matter what you call it, you know it when you hear it. Amen. And God has just made some people different when where encouragement from certain people means something more than it does from other people or even a, a compliment, which of course isn't the same thing. But sometimes it, from one person, for whatever reason, it just matters more. You know, it hits your heart in a different way. Those are encouragers uh, who have this ability to speak from the heart to the heart and, and, and lift someone up in a special way. And I think Peter was that kind of guy, or at least I think that Peter was gifted in that, that special kind of way of encouraging when he wrote this section of chapter 2. Because to be able to write to these disciples, these beloved children of God, in the way that he does, calling them a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, it's almost a love letter of sorts. He's laying it on thick. And as you probably noticed, most of this section 
It's actually about Jesus and how he is precious. But what I've really come to see in Peter is that he's as much a pastor as he is a preacher for sure. And in declaring Christ to be this preeminent, glorious, precious cornerstone, Peter does so in such an inviting way, not just letting Jesus be in front of them for their inspection, but he's leading them to Christ for them to take hold of with affection, with grace, and with the spiritual affirmation of their identity in him. This is Peter presenting the truth in love. And please know that that when Christ is spoken about, as he is in this passage, and as he is hopefully from this pulpit, that he is spoken of in this context of drawing men to himself. You know, Jesus writes, John, or speaks in John 12, and if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw men to myself. I will draw all men to myself. Coming to him, that's how our verse starts. And it's how the rest of this passage must be read. Christ is to be understood as one to whom you are drawing near and one who invites us to come to him. We often return to that passage from Hebrews. It's a line that is in most of my sermons where it says, we're looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. But it's not looking while standing still. And Hebrews 12 makes that clear. You're moving towards him. You're, You're looking at where you're headed in order to keep yourself oriented towards the proper goal. Similarly, all the theology about how Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, it's it's understood only by those who are also part of the living stone structure called the church, the people that are being built upon that living stone. Coming to Christ is the context in which all of this is to be understood, and it is your way to understanding of God. Peter says all these things about Jesus. He speaks these profound spiritual truths about God, but he does so in such a way that he's not just presenting Christ as an entity or concept separate from these pilgrims to whom he is writing. He's presenting Christ as the one who is both with them and the one to whom they are being called. Notice, please, that he doesn't just say in verse 4, Christ is a living stone, full stop. Write that in your theology textbooks. He says, you're coming, we are coming to him as a living stone. And then verse 5 says, you also are being built up. There's a statement about Christ, yes, but phrased in the context of a Christian's growth. In this way, again, he's very pastoral. He phrases his theology in such a way as to show that it's part of this process of a Christian's growth and sanctification and pursuit of Christ. Theology needs to be practical. And I really, I just like how Peter assumes that they're all coming to Christ. He's been making some of these same kind of generous statements, uh, generous assumptions about the Christians receiving this letter, which is really cool. Uh, You remember he's writing to multiple congregations. He mentioned all the cities in the beginning of chapter one that were going to be receiving this letter. We know how church is. You guys go to church. You know the way it's always been. It's a mixed bag, okay? I mean, we spent a couple years in Corinthians. We've seen just how mixed the bag can be, right? But we, we don't see, at least in this first section of Peter, we don't see any sort of hesitancy on his part uh, in, in proclaiming these saints to be joyful, saved, beloved pilgrims who are on their journey towards their living hope, the living word, the living stone. 
Now, Paul does the same thing, of course. He'll write these letters, and he just calls all the Christians saints. And we always kind of raise an eyebrow and say, were they really, though? Like, doesn't that mean holy ones? I mean, if you've read ahead, you know that in Peter's next letter, he has some really choice words for false teachers. So that, you know, we know that things weren't always pure and perfect. But again, Peter, as a shepherd of souls, just has this gift of encouragement and exhortation and brings the people along with him into this pursuit of Christ, not just as a person saying, go, do do the thing, do this, but as a friend saying, you're doing it. You are doing it. We're doing it. We are pursuing Christ. Right now, living stones, take heart. We are moving towards Christ. The Holy Spirit is faithful to bring you towards him, and you are closer now to him than you were yesterday. He's doing great things in our lives, and we're running together towards this one that we love who loves us. This is the one to whom we're running. Verse 4, coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. That's Jesus. And Peter's going to share these verses from the Old Testament, the word of God by which they had the gospel preached to them. Uh, If you want to remember that verse from chapter 1 that we looked at a couple weeks ago, explaining how Jesus is the cornerstone. He's going to explain that later. But, but first notice that Peter really likes this word living. Uh, he said in, in chapter 1 that we've been born again to a living hope. And then at the end of chapter 1, he described the word of God as the word that lives and abides forever. And here, both Christ and his followers, you and I, are called living stones. Later in the chapter, he's going to explain that Christ died so that we could live for righteousness, verse 24. And he'll expound more on that in chapter 3, verse 18, when he says we have been made alive by the Spirit. And he'll say the same thing again in chapter 4. Why would Peter like this concept so much? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is actually a matter of life and death. And there is actual life, true life, eternal life in Christ. He talks about living hope and living stones and the living word because the resurrection life that is ours in Christ, changes everything. And because if Jesus is truly and gloriously alive, then our lives, which are in him, are changed in every possible way. And specifically, our lives which are hid with Christ in God, our lives which are not our own, right? They're his. They're all tied up in this person of Christ. So our lives are defined by Christ's life. And we even see this in Peter's words here. We come to Jesus as a living stone. He is the living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. All these things are first and foremost primarily true about Jesus. The Sunday school answer works in this verse. Okay, what's the answer? It's Jesus. But because Jesus has brought you to himself, these are things that are true about you too. You are tied now to the rejection of Jesus, the rejected Christ. That's you. That's your life. You, you are tied now to God's choosing. He chose Christ and all who are in Christ. And, and, but as Christ was rejected by men, he was chosen by God. We've seen in chapter 1 that these things are true about you. Peter called these people chosen, specially selected by the God who loves you and considers you precious. Jesus is described with this word precious three times. And then in verse 9, Peter calls the church his own special people. Similar concept here, a loving thing of unique value. This is you if you are his, and you are. 
this statement that Jesus is a living stone rejected by men might not make much sense to the casual reader if taken in isolation. Peter knows this, so he's going to kind of paint the whole word picture so the metaphor can make some more sense in verses 6 and 7 and 8. But before we get to those, we get verse 5, which gets us right back into this loving spiritual direction that Peter is giving. So verse 5, read that again. It says, You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Oh man, there's so much here. You are living stones. Uh, This isn't just an original Peter thought, though you think it might be, because he's like, my name's Peter, it means the rock, and you're all going to be kind of like me. Um, No, this isn't a, a, a... Peter original, that Paul talks like this too, indicating that this was a common way of speaking and a widespread belief throughout the apostles and the early church, okay? The first generation of believers attached themselves to this idea of being living stones, being built into a temple. They saw themselves as a new temple. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Is any of this sounding familiar at all? Someone was looking over someone's shoulder when the test was being taken. Ephesians 2, 21. In whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This is New Testament Christianity. We're the temple. The the temple of the Old Covenant has found its full meaning in the church. Its sacrifices have found their meaning and fulfillment in Christ. And in verse 22 of Ephesians 2, it says, In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You are living stones, being built together as God's temple. You are his house. When we meet together, to offer the sacrifice of praise and feast on the fulfillment of every Old Testament offering received in the body and blood of Jesus, we are doing temple ministry. It's one of the reasons why gathering together is so vitally important. A bunch of scattered bricks do not make a building. The basic unit of Christianity, it's not the individual, it's the church that is made up of living stones, of people. The temple of God is not made with dead rocks, this new temple, like Solomon's was. It's made of living beings. It's us. Of course, Paul says the same thing in Corinthians. He tells them your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we usually take that in a sort of individualistic way because God lives in me, and that's true. That's fine. I'm the temple. You're the temple, right? But in that verse in Corinthians, temple is singular. You is plural. And a more responsible reading of the text is that your bodies together are the temple. We together are being built together for a holy dwelling place for God in the spirit. We're the temple. Now, when we say we're God's house, there's a beautiful double meaning here. There's good layers. Peter writes that you are being built up a spiritual house. And of course, the symbolism is there with the temple and we get that. But when Paul wrote that passage in Ephesians 2 that I just read, he begins in verse 19 by saying, you are God's family. And then he explains that with this temple metaphor. And this double meaning goes all the way back to King David, right? Second Samuel verse, uh, chapter 7, it's when David wants to build a temple for the Lord. And, and David says, I will build God a house. And then God, who loves irony and poetic justice, says to David, no, I'll build you a house. <laughs> and it becomes clear that when David was talking about a house, he was talking about four walls and a roof. And when God's talking about a house, he's talking about a dynasty, 
He's talking about a family. So we have both the ideas, this, this, these two ideas of house and household that both Peter and Paul include in their discussion of the spiritual house. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Yes, absolutely. And we are God's family. Yes and amen. Something we do as this family, we function as priests. Priesthood was something that was inherited, father to son. And to be a priesthood is to be a brotherhood. Of course, Christ's priesthood is spoken of elsewhere in Scripture. We're aware that in the Jewish system, right, the only people that could be priests were sons, descendants of Aaron, and Jesus was not that. And it's explained to us in Scripture that Jesus is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. It's a different priesthood. Melchizedek was a priest in Genesis. He was a Gentile. He uh, meets Abraham after a battle and then offers him bread and wine. Ooh, real interesting there, right? His name means... Uh, king of peace. And our priesthood, too, is of a different kind. We're not of the tribe of Levi. We're not descended from Aaron, but we are priests nonetheless who offer up spiritual sacrifices. Our worship as well is centered around bread and wine. Melchizedek offering bread and wine to God's people. There's, There's hints here that we can dig into. And the Lord's Supper is part of our worship, of course, but our priesthood extends certainly beyond that. We present our our bodies as living sacrifices. Christ offered his body as a sacrifice, and we're called to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. We also offer, according to Hebrews 13, what's called the sacrifice of praise. We offer our worship. We offer our obedience as servants and children, and we offer him our our faith, our hope, our love. These are our spiritual sacrifices. This is our priestly ministry, and we are able to offer all of these things freely to the Father through the Son, and this points again to his priesthood. You get to be a priest, which is pretty cool, because you get to handle holy things, and you get to go to where God is, and you get to be close to God. That's a privilege that a priest has, but we only get that because Jesus is our priest, We worship our Father because Jesus has offered offered perfect worship to the Father. We can go to the Father through that veil, which Hebrews says is Jesus' flesh, but that veil has been torn, removing the barrier between God and the priesthood. As priests, you and I can come to the mercy seat, God's throne, to receive grace in time of need, and it's always a time of need, and to offer these spiritual sacrifices only because Jesus has gone before us. And he has said, no one comes to the Father but by me. But now since he has gone to the Father, we can follow. These are such blessings that Peter is pronouncing over the Christians receiving this letter. The ones he called sojourners, exiles, pilgrims who are suffering. I just picture them coming, you know, or him coming to these suffering pilgrims and exiles and wrapping them in a warm blanket and reminding them that their trajectory is Christward. They're heading towards Christ. They're coming to a temple. They're part of a good family. They're part of a priesthood that worships God alongside of and through their Savior, Jesus. And then he's going to go through these verses about Christ's role as a living stone, which centers mostly about his rejection. And now this would have had some personal meaning for the people reading the letter because they're the ones going through fiery trials for Christ's sake. We saw that in chapter 1. We'll see more of it in chapter 4. They're being rejected by men. They're being, uh, you know, victims and suffering some indignities. So what they're seeing is Peter lovingly points their eyes towards Christ, their living stone. As he's pointing out to them, they're not alone in any of these sufferings. 
in any of their rejection, that their rejection, like Christ's, are seen by God. And like Christ, their experiences are anticipating something that is tremendously glorious. In verse 6, he says, Therefore it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. That's a, that's a verse from Isaiah 28. In Isaiah 28, verse 16, if you read it in the New King James, it says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. That's Jesus. Um, if we're being built into a spiritual house and we're the spiritual stones next to each other, and each generation, one on top of the other with the apostles and prophets at the bottom of the foundation, then surely the cornerstone, that great big rock that provides the perfect standard of level and plumb, that has to be Jesus. We are modeled according to his right angles, so to speak. And what do you think God, the builder of worlds, the maker of the church, is making us into? He's making you into a church that follows the clear lines of the cornerstone and that rests on that firm foundation. We are having the life of Christ formed in us. The process of sanctification is cutting away edges and leveling us, which means if, if this chief cornerstone sets a pattern which includes suffering, then we suffer in line with his experience. If this chief cornerstone is raised to glory, then we are raised with him to glory. Whoever believes on him will by no means be put to shame. We believe on the cornerstone. How is this done? Believe that the life of Christ is the perfect standard of living. Trust that you are being shaped and modeled after his perfection. We trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins and believe him when he says he is able to raise us to newness of life. To believe in Jesus is to believe that he's right. He's level and plumb. And if the bubble on the level isn't centered, it's you that needs adjusting. <laughs> but the, and, I, and I think there's more to it than that as well. We know that and the one who believes on Jesus, these Christians that Peter is writing to, they're coming to him, verse 5. They're drawn to him. He has their allegiance. But more than that, he has their affection. And he adds to this idea of belief, this virtue of love in verse 7. It says, therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. The verse goes on. But we'll pause here for a second. This fraction of a verse, which is read differently in different versions, and the other ones are better than the one I just read it from, um, and we'll get to that in a second too. But this verse that, that in King James and New King James, it says, therefore, to you who believe he is precious. This is, was the first text uh, for Charles Spurgeon's first sermon that he ever gave. Uh, when he was 16 years old, and it was for a small group meeting in someone's home. He was filling in for a friend. And, and he said later that he picked this passage simply because he loved Jesus and couldn't help but talk about him. And years later, after he had you know, preached another thousand sermons or so, he explained his reasoning. He said, Christ was precious to my soul, and I was in the flush of my youthful love, and I could not be silent when a precious Jesus was the subject. He loved the living stone. Christ was precious to his soul. And what's interesting is most translations figure this is actually a pretty bad translation of the text. Uh, if you've got the ESV there, it reads, So the honor is for you who believe. That's very different. The New American Standard reads, this precious value then is for you who believe. 
so there's a different way of understanding this. Christ is precious, yes, and through faith we share in that value and glory. But those who lack this faith and affection towards Christ have a different experience. And there's these sobering verses here. It says, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Uh, something I think you need to notice here is the opposites that Peter sets up against each other. It's not faith and doubt, which would be opposites in our mind, I think, or even faith on the one hand and then disbelief on the other hand. He says that there's those who believe on one hand and those who disobey on the other. And what this means, what this indicates is disobedience is opposed to faith in this way that obedience becomes synonymous or at least firmly attached to faith. Believing carries with it the idea of obedience. Of course, Jesus says that the command of God is to believe. So you've got kind of a chicken and egg situation here. You can get stuck on that loop. Your obedience is to believe. Um, but there's more to it than that. Believe in Jesus. Believing in Jesus means coming to him. It means walking with him. It means loving him. And it does mean doing his will. But for those who do not obey Christ, who do not want to do his will, no matter what ideas they might have about Christ, they are not being built according to the perfect plumb and level standard of the cornerstone, are they? And instead, they trip over him and get hurt in the process. In this passage he's quoting here, it's Psalm 118.22 and Isaiah 8, verse 14. Uh, the passage from Isaiah, the one in verse 8, is God declaring judgment on a disobedient people. And Peter says, for those who disobey Jesus, he's not their savior, he is their judge. Now these are not the only passages of where Jesus is the rock, right? You see God described in this way throughout the Old Testament in Daniel. Jesus and his kingdom is the stone not cut with human hands that destroys and replaces all human empires. In Exodus, he's the rock that followed them. That is the rock that was struck and offered water. Uh, throughout the Psalms, God is identified as the rock. It's a title indicating his strength, his reliability, his immutability. He's unchanging, you know. And now, why would this idea of Jesus as a stone be important to a guy like Peter? Well, again, perhaps his name. Peter's called the rock, and he's the foundation to the church. The apostles share this. They're the foundation of this spiritual building. But he's just like all of us in that he finds his identity in what Christ is and what Christ has done. Jesus named Peter the rock, and Peter then is attuned now to see Jesus as the chief cornerstone. He says, you're the one that's solid. You're the one that's unmoving. You're the one that sets the standard. It's not me. He sees Jesus as this stone that can become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And here in Peter, the idea of Christ as the rock is connected with a strength that is either for you or against you. It's an echo of what Jesus said when he called himself a rock. He said that either you fall on him and are broken, or he falls on you and crushes you to powder. That's Matthew 21, 44. And this was a fate that Peter recognized as the, as the, uh, the end of you know, the, the Jewish establishment at the time of the crucifixion. Some of the Sadducees and Pharisees the Sanhedrin. These are supposed to be the builders of God's people, and they rejected Jesus. He had become for them a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, but Peter is sure to clarify that the stumbling that happened was not because the path was ill-lit. The word was given to them. 
which was the light to their path. The prophets came to Israel. They heard the words of John the Baptist. They heard the words of Jesus. They stumbled not because of a lack of illumination or a lack of faith or because there were legitimate doubts. He identifies the rejection of Christ as one of disobedience. Now, the wording can be a little tricky, but the idea here is that it is appointed for those who disobey Jesus to stumble over him. We kind of mentioned this a while back when we talked about the word in chapter one, how there's this principle of spiritual understanding being given to ones who are walking according to the spirit rather than the flesh. There's a principle of illumination being granted to those who are pursuing holiness. This is the opposite side of that. The one who rejected the way of Jesus, of course, will be disillusioned, confused, and offended by Jesus. And this will in no way prevent Jesus from being established as the chief cornerstone. And it will not prevent the establishment of this church that is built on a rock. So in verse 9, Peter shifts back to talking to the church about the church, to the believers for whom he hopes better things. He acknowledged this painful reality that those who reject the way of Jesus, the words of Jesus, will stumble and fall over Jesus. There will be a crash landing. But he's talking to the church here and he's saying, I'm not warning you against this so much. I'm, I'm just giving you this reality so your hearts are sober and that you're aware of how important this Jesus is. But I am telling you, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He says, go to the people that are stumbling over the stone and bring them into the light. You who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. A chosen generation. Other translations say a chosen people. ESV says a chosen race. Now here's a footnote here. It's a sidebar that doesn't belong in the sermon, but it's a freebie. I won't charge you for it. You can take this home for your own study time. The fact that generation here can be translated as people or even race might have an effect on your understanding of Jesus' promise in the Olivet Discourse where he says, that, talking about the signs of the end of the world, that this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Is he talking about those living? Or was he talking about the race? those who he was talking to rabbit trail for you guys to figure out you check back with me later back to peter you have to notice you have to notice here that peter is speaking to christians he's speaking to christians many of whom are converts from judaism but he's speaking to these christians like they are jews um there are lots and lots of commentaries that are dead set on this fact that peter was writing to jewish christians it seems far more likely that there was a mixed bunch because that's what the church was I mean, pretty much right out of the gate uh, it seems far more likely there were Jews and Gentiles in his audience as this takes place after he saw Cornelius receive the Holy Spirit, after the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. The church was neither Jew nor Greek. It was a new thing. But Peter uses these kinds of identifiers that were previously only used by the Jews. Who's the chosen race? Who's God's people? Well, it, it's Israel. But now Peter borrows from that language to describe Christians, the ones that are grafted in. God's chosen people. The idea of a royal priesthood also. That's a Jewish idea, but it's more than that. The royal priesthood, once more, is not in the line of Aaron, but Melchizedek, a Gentile whose role and mantle is taken up by Jesus Christ. 
who is both king and priest. And as we follow him, as we come to this living stone, we take on this identity as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. We have this new citizenship. We've got new passports. We can say, I'm not of this world. We can identify proudly as exiles and pilgrims during our short stay here. You know, when Peter calls Christians exiles in chapter 1, verse 2, he's not belittling them at all. It's not a slight or a slur. He's saying, you come from so much better than this. You belong to such a better kingdom than this one. Are you rejected by this world or does this world system seem to be such that you feel as if you are being pushed out to the margins or does the way the world works just strike you as totally foreign, strange, and broken? Maybe it's because it's not like this where you're from. Maybe it's because your homeland is different. And you have a, a patriotic ache for the builder who's with foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So how do we live as exiles? That's really what Peter is writing about in the first place, actually. In the bigger context, it's how do we live as exiles? How do we live as pilgrims and sojourners who are just passing through? How do we conduct ourselves in our short stay? Or another question, what are we even doing here? The answer is why we've been chosen, to proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaim the praises of the one who saved you. Declare the goodness of the one who saved you to the world that's still in darkness. You who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy, have a responsibility and a privilege to say something about it. Like a 16-year-old Charles Spurgeon who couldn't help but talk about the one who had become precious to him. You have been saved. You were lost and now you're found. You were blind but now you see. You were dead and now you're a living stone. You didn't belong and now you're part of the family of God. You had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained abundant mercy, chapter 1 says. A miraculous mercy. And this reception of abundant mercy has literally caused you to be born again to a living hope. So proclaim the praises of the God who has done this. The next portion of 1 Peter is going to deal with matters of practical application, Christian living, but those passages, those practical passages exist in this framework. This assumption that you are being drawn towards Christ. We are coming to Christ. And we have received such mercy. We have received such blessings. And we are pursuing Christ, coming to him, being drawn to him, being shaped into his image, and cannot help but live lives that proclaim his praises. This is what he is doing in your lives. He is transforming you from glory to glory so that he can receive all the glory. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you as your special people who have been grafted in, who have been adopted, who have been made sons and daughters of the King. We come to you as priests offering our, our sacrifice of praise and worship through the priesthood of Christ, whoever lives to make intercession for us. We look to you, Jesus. We pray that this gaze of the soul would have its effect and that you would change us and shape us into the image of the Son of God. Bless your church, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Please stand. Mm.
Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and 